0: Welcome, class. Thank you for listening to Invita Mortem, a Deadly Class podcast. I am one of your hosts, Russ, and with me tonight is Naya. How's it going, everyone? And uh, yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Deadly Class pilot. Uh, this, is a weird, uh, this is a weird conversation a little bit because uh, Nicole is with us, but not with us. She's feeling very sick. So I've retrofitted a conversation she and I had before Naya had an opportunity to record. And yeah. uh, I'll, I'll be kind of Frankensteining together an episode based on that. If you've already heard my conversation with Nicole, then you can either skip the second half or you can listen because the sound quality is going to be as much better as it can be given how poor her mic was. And also there's a brief clip of my conversation with Luke Tenney and Liam James from New York Comic Con included in there. But uh wanted to make sure that Naya had a chance to kind of talk about the pilot as well because – uh Really, Nicole and I just did a first reactions thing because we'd had the opportunity to see it super early. Yeah, I got
1: to see it like when they had released that first episode. Mm-hmm.
0: Um. December was I think late December maybe. yes. Yeah, that was awesome though. Your mic just got real quiet all of a sudden. Oh really? Yeah.
1: Let me know if that's any better. I- I yeah, that's up. better. Okay.
0: Yeah. But yeah, they they released it sometime in I think early December. About about roughly six weeks before it eventually came out for real tonight. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I seen like the whole like them. Everyone was tweeting like the whole cast. Yeah, image you know Wes Craig, Remender, everyone.
0: And uh, yeah, the I I live tweeted tonight's broadcast from the podcast account as well. So we we got uh. We, we got some interaction in, some making fun of uh, Rick Remender uh, yeah. selling, selling his soul to Toyota. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, he's funny. I like him. He's-
0: oh, I did, and I, I, I said in the thing, I was like, I mean this in the nicest possible way, but this is like an exploration of 80s punk subculture uh, brought to you by Toyota. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, man
0: uh but yeah i mean uh what did you think about the the pilot we talked very briefly about it when uh when we were talking about issue one of the comic but obviously <laughs> it's a whole different thing kind of being able to talk openly about it and with people who have heard it or have seen it
1: yeah um i was really impressed because i, I honestly <laughs> when it comes to a lot of these comic book adaptations, mm-hmm. i'm very i get worried a lot like you know, like, Lucifer and I Zombie, like, uh, Preacher. Like, I get really worried because mm-hmm. I always feel like it's not the best they can do. And I, I had a good feeling just because I know how involved Remender was going to be with the process. And I thought, like, the pilot, I think that's one of the best pilots I've ever seen, like, just in general. Like, forget about mm-hmm. the fact that it's an adaptation of a comic book. I just think it's one of the best first episodes I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because, for me, I had seen that first 13 minutes that they showed at San Diego uh-huh. And I wasn't really blown away by that being shown in a vacuum, like, and and part of it I think is because those that first little bit it's just uh, it's just Marcus. Yeah, there, there's not really a lot of anything else going on, and so it gives you a sense for who he is and for the look and feel of the world, but you don't really get a sense of deadly class until the other characters start to start to kind of come in. And that doesn't really happen in the pilot until Saya shows up, which is when that initial piece of footage cut. It was. And so for me, it was like, I had seen, when I went to the set, I had seen that first like 13 minutes and I was like, yeah, it's, it's, it's fine, but it's like, it's not blowing me away.
1: Yeah. And,
0: and then I talked to the cast and it's, it's one of those things, this is such a talented cast and they're so passionate about the show. It's like, I want this show to be as good as it can be because like these guys clearly are passionate about it and I think that they can make a really good show and so once I got a chance to see the full pilot it was like oh thank god like they did it
1: <laughs> <laughs> false alarm it was actually really
0: good um yeah
1: yeah I, I guess you're right because like it's just a lot of, of him monologue I mean that's kind of really how it starts though <laughs> so, Yeah, yeah, like...
0: yeah and again it's it even then it wasn't bad it just was like you know, it's the beginning of the TV season. You're seeing a whole lot of big things going on between new pilots and and season premieres and all that kind of crap. And it's like, I, I was watching it, going, I mean, this is fine and all, but where's everything? Like, what's happening? <laughs> and I so think, it's it, it wasn't bad. Like, don't get me wrong, but it was kind of like, come on, guys, let's get moving.
1: <laughs> I think the Wes Craig animation part. Oh yeah, that's that's really what got because I, I I did I just wasn't. I don't I don't. Something in my mind told me, like, I hope they do it. I was thinking maybe if they're, like, an opening for the TV show, like, the show, like, they would have, like, an opening to use it. But when I saw, like, Wes Craig's animation, I'm, I I must have sh- – I think I shrieked. I, I, I couldn't believe they did it. I was like, yes, yes, more of this. Yeah,
0: and that was by uh, Titmouse Studios, and I don't know what else they've done, but I know that I've, like, seen them before, so I feel like they probably have done animation. Maybe they did, like, the opening credits for iZombie with all that Mike Allred art or something. Okay. But, like, uh, Rick shouted them out during the live tweet tonight. And, it, you know, so it was, like, Wes's art animated by this this animation house. And, again, like, I can't remember what I know them from, but they, they've they been around for a while, and they're pretty good. And, and I think they do mostly smaller stuff like this.
1: That had to be really cool for him to see, though.
0: Oh, to yeah. To see, like,
1: his, like his, his style and, like, emotion like that. That had to be really cool.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because uh, when I talked to Wes at New York Comic Con, I was like, "Oh yeah, hey, I was at the, I was on set. You know, your name is in graffiti on the bathroom wall in, the, in King's Dominion. Did you do that?" He's like, "No, man, I haven't been at the set yet." Uh, oh wow! He, he was going like the next week, and uh, and so it was that thing of like when I talked to Wes, he hadn't seen like pretty much anything yet. Like he'd seen the same like fifteen minutes that everybody'd seen it in San Diego and that was about it. Okay. And so I can't even imagine what it was like when he, you know, got up there and watched essentially a finalized print of the episode and got to see that kind of in context for the first time.
1: That'd be amazing. I'm going great feeling. I sounded like he I saw him tweeting a little earlier too, so he was like he was pretty stoked.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean Again, one of the nice things about Image is that things are creator owned. And it's not just like it, it's easy to talk about this as being Rick's baby because Rick is the executive producer and the showrunner of Deadly Class, the TV show. Yes. But like Wes has a lot of involvement. He helps with the designs. He's there's like he still has ownership. Even like even if they didn't give him a ton of input, which they seem to be doing, he has literal ownership. Like he's getting a healthy chunk of money. He's, he's
1: a cool creator, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's one of the things that I really like about, about, uh, image in general. It's one of the reasons that I'm always like hur, 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 about <laughs> the walking dead. Uh, I, I, I like Kirkman a lot. Like I re- genuinely like as a, as a writer, as a person, I like Kirkman a lot, but the, the whole thing with him freezing out the artists, uh, and being like the creator, it's like that feels fundamentally unimaged to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't even know about that. So that's kind of that's kind of shocking to hear.
0: Yeah, there was a whole thing where Tony Moore sued him, and uh, they they settled out of court like on two different occasions because I guess the first time he sued, Kirkman's lawyers refused to actually write the checks. And Kirkman, and so he sued again because he's like, dude, I never saw any of that money. And Kirkman had to like fire his lawyers and get new ones or something. (laughs) My understanding is the second time wasn't, you know, so Mm. much Kirkman's fault. But again, it was just, it's a bad look for image in particular. It's kind of like when Todd McFarlane gets sued, got sued for trying to steal stuff from Gaiman.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was, that wasn't cool.
0: Yeah. But uh, that's one of the nice things about, this and and about happy which is also on sci-fi mm-hmm. is uh watching the artists interact with fans on twitter and talk about their experiences with the show and like actually be a part of the process a little bit
1: yeah i want, I want to ask you like how you know how much he was involved in the creation of the show or was he just kind of like
0: i'm not really sure because uh, i Obviously he isn't there every single day. Like Rick like you know relocated to Vancouver and was on set as far as I could tell pretty much all the time.
1: Yeah, cuz I think I think he was still working on Gravedigger's Union you know, maybe maybe he was busy with that.
0: Yeah, I think he uh and the other thing is too that he does a lot more shows than Rick does, I get the impression because like he obviously artists supplement a lot of their income by going to conventions and doing sketches and doing, and doing commissions. Yeah. So I I think, I think it's one of those things where he has a, a slightly more defined role, I guess, than Rick does in terms of like, here's what you do for the show. And he doesn't have to like physically be there to do anything else. He just kind of does what he does, but I, I I could be wrong. I'm just working on that assumption. Mm -hmm. And like my assumptions aren't always right. I know I had a whole thing. I, I actually I was uh, after the whole thing where somebody was questioning uh, Tom King's CIA service in a blog post a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh, I don't know if you saw that or not, but I didn't, I
1: didn't see it, but but, uh, but I, I know I know I, I, I remember when I first heard he he, he, he said I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody somebody recently was like do we really have any proof that he did it comics comics journalism is pretty crappy and some, and, and people aren't asking enough questions. And Tom was like, Oh, here's, here's like a picture of me in Iraq with a giant gun. If you had asked me this, instead of just publishing something, I could have immediately shown you a pay stub. I mean, I don't know why this is a thing, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but like, I, I, at that time when I I called him up to be like, Hey, this is a blog post that's out there. Just so you know, uh, do you have a comment? Uh, he and I got in a a conversation about how like I was under the impression that he was like behind a desk in his job, that he was like kind of a a private investigator almost. Mm -hmm. And he's like, hell no, man. I was like the, the dude out there getting shot at. I was like, man, I had no idea. (laughs) Like, because you just work with, you work with the assumption that you have.
1: Yeah.
0: But uh, but yeah, so I, I know that Wes is has some level of involvement, and I know that he's providing art for the uh, the Titmouse animations, but mm-hmm. I don't know exactly uh, what that looks like. That, that's probably a very good question for the next time we get a chance to talk to Wes. Yeah,
1: I'd like to know. But I mean, I'm happy for I'm happy for them because it was yeah. it, You know what? You know, like how I knew it was one of those shows that I thought was really really. I showed it to a lot of people, Uh-huh. and they all resonated with it. Like a lot of them, even went out and bought like bought some issues, bought some volumes, mm-hmm. bought the hardcovers, and like I, I, there's not too many of my like friends that can go and show them something like that, and they like they'll 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 click with them like that. Yeah, so that Deadly class. I showed it to I, I honestly at least twenty people. <laughs> I must have watched that pie, like twenty times with nice. twenty different people, and they all loved it.
0: You know, it's it's funny because. uh I, I get the same I, – I get, like, evangelical about stuff that I like, especially stuff that's – like, that is smaller and it's not inherently going to, yeah. you know, get noticed unless I force it down people's throat a little bit. And no, so I, that, I don't no, – well. <laughs> But uh, uh, another thing that's worth saying just because, like, hey, the, the pilot's out. People are watching it. People are digging it. Uh, right now at Humble Bundle, Rick is doing a, a charity thing where you can buy the first 35 issues of the book digitally for like 15 bucks, And a chunk sure. of the money goes to a mental health charity.
1: Oh, I, no, I, should, like, I should let people know about that. I didn't, I
0: didn't
1: know. Yeah, I, I,
0: I, I'm a physical guy. Yeah, so am I generally, although I like to have digital copies. like it, It'll be super helpful to have a digital copy for the next time we do uh, a podcast talking about, you know, number two of the comic because mm-hmm. now instead of like having that giant hardcover that I'm struggling to not let it hit the mic and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, it's like, I actually liked our first episode. The one thing I wasn't happy with was my doing the recap of the, of the comic because it was like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't prep for that the way I should have. But like next time I'll just be able to pull up a PDF of number two and just scroll through it and be like, Hey, here's what happens.
1: Yeah. That's easier that way. Than better. Yeah.
0: Uh, and for 15 bucks for it's, it's literally all 35 single issue PDFs and then all of the trade paperbacks in PDF form. And okay. so it's, it's kind of that thing of, uh, if you are like, if you do digital comics at all, uh, it's, it's worth it just because it's an incredibly convenient way to have the, the series kind of, no matter how you read.
1: and yeah, do so good with it too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, uh, that's one of the things I really dig, too. Uh, the the folks who are involved in the show have been pretty active with stuff like that. Siobhan Williams, who plays Brandy, uh, set up a charity thing about a month and a half ago where you can go and donate to this, like, cat shelter in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And if you donate, you get entered to win, like, a variety of Deadly Class, like, swag that she and the rest of the cast have donated, like autograph pictures, and autograph trade paperbacks, and all that.
1: I gotta, I gotta get me some of those sweaters and stuff. <laughs> I know. I, yeah, I, I still don't have any of them, but not, I, I, and I've been seeing them for months, and I'm like,
0: yeah, I keep forgetting. That's uh, you know, it's funny. I uh, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get better about not owning almost exclusively comic book merch. Um, it's like, I have so much stuff, like so much clothes that is, it's like not professional at all. Right now I'm wearing, uh, the deadly class t-shirt I got at San Diego Comic-Con at the sci-fi booth. Uh, and then like a jacket, which is just a regular jacket, but it has a, it has a, the King's Dominion pin on it.
1: I mean, I I I feel you. I'm in a Superman uh, robe, so yeah, <laughs> and I have Star Trek slippers on. So like, nice, I kinda, nice, I feel you.
0: <laughs> it's funny. Uh, my my robe is DC as well, although it's it's uh at a press event over the summer they did a like a sanctuary themed thing, and so they they gave us like these just plain white bathrobes with a gold DC on the back. That's uh, nice, and. Uh, it's like, yeah, that's nice because uh, I don't think I've had like a rope that I actually tied shut because you know you lose the rope first.
1: <laughs> oh, so, yeah, this the, the rope that I use is not even that one.
0: It's, it's, it's another one I have. So
1: <laughs> that's the first thing you lose for sure. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, for you, was was there anybody who really stuck out uh, performance wise? Because for me, it was it was really interesting. Uh, I thought that Luke and Liam were the two that really jumped out at me as like these are characters I want to see a lot more of. These are very dynamic performances, and it's funny because neither of them are like the main featured characters in the pilot.
1: Um, um I don't, I don't remember the actor that plays Willie. What, what's his, what's his real name? Uh, Luke Tenney. So it's definitely Luke, and I would say uh, it's Benedict Wong or the one Benedict, Benedict Wong. I oh, think yeah. those. Those were the two that stood out to me the most. I just, I don't know, I, I, I was, I remember being like a little bit worried about Wong. I know I liked that it was, it was him. Yeah. And I thought that like, he had that really masterful presence of like, I run this school. Mm-hmm. I need what you need, but don't you ever think that you could cross me that, and, and I don't know what you're doing. To the point where like, in the first scene, he's not even looking at the note being passed, mm-hmm. but he boom puts a stick down. Yeah. And he, I'm like, oh man, like this is gonna this is gonna be great. And like when he's talking about who would you kill, this and that and the other. I just like it was so raw. Like I, I love oh, it. Yeah.
0: It's it's funny. One of the things I really like, and I talked to to Wong a little bit about this at New York Comic Con, actually, was I like that first scene because the way that it's shot and the way that it's framed, if you don't read the comics and you don't know who Brandy is, then the whole, the whole, sh- that whole thing kind of biases towards Brandy, like she's this pretty girl who gets like smacked across the face for seemingly very little to no reason.
1: So probably and I so- love no, but, but but if you know who she is,
0: yeah, exactly. And so it's it's to me that was like it's such a great sequence to open on because not not only does it say a lot about Wong and about his no nonsense attitude, but also. It allows this kind of subversion of expectations because you see it and you're just like, "Oh, this poor girl," blah 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 blah, and then immediately it's like he opens up that note and you're like, "Oh, Jesus Christ!" <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's one of those things that's really cool because as a comic book a comic book reader, mm-hmm. right? It, it, like your foreknowledge lets you know, like exactly, mm, yeah, I, you know what's in the note. But for people who don't know, exactly, like you said, it's subverts expectations. So like it, it it works for for both sides,
0: which is really yeah. Cool. Uh and it's funny on, on Twitter during the, the thing, Siobhan was joking that uh they CG'd in the note later and that she was she was like, uh I'll never tell what the original one said. And so I just uh, I, I responded with I bet it said, Do you heart Dukes of Hazard? Check yes, check no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my god. And then oh yeah, yeah for the second person for, for Willie, uh-huh. I just, I just really liked his energy. Yeah, and, and you know what's like really dope? Like, like, like you said, like they're very passionate. I think you can really see that in the characters and how they're acting. You can see how much they care and want to bring these characters to life. Mm-hmm. And when he pulled up <laughs> in the, in the, in his car, mm-hmm. he's like, "I ain't no punk like Chico. Get in the down I was like, "Oh man!" Like I just, yeah. I just loved it. Like, like even the moment he pulled up, like, "Why are you back in that black ass jacket?" I'm like, "Oh." Yeah. I just like everything he said made me made me and, and then the, like the 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 part with the X Men versus the Indies I just like I just lost I was, I was dying a laugh there yeah. when, when that exchange happened.
0: Yeah. Again, I, it's funny. I went out the other day. I uh, went to the movies for that Reign of the Superman thing that they were doing, and I uh, on the way in I took a picture of the Dark Phoenix poster because I'm just like I'll be able to use this for a joke later on the Deadly Class. <laughs> um, yeah. But mm-hmm. yeah, that. And it's funny, again, like, for for 90% of everybody watching the show, most of those names don't mean anything to them. Yeah. It's like, nobody know. like, Flaming Carrot sounds like it's not a real thing. Uh, <laughs> John, and and like, John Byrne and Chris Claremont, most people are going to know that, like, okay, those are the guys who did Dark Phoenix, whatever Dark Phoenix is, but it doesn't mean anything. And so it really does feel like it's just a scene that's written for the 5% of people who are going to get it.
1: Yeah, yeah, for, like, us.
0: yeah. You can geek over it. Which, again, it kind of it speaks to a lot, because I feel like the, the show plays to that oftentimes. You know, the fact that you have the Wes Craig inspired animated element, and then the fact that you have these, like, the cast and all these interviews that they've been talking about everything, it's like m- most of them are not comic book people, but they've all really embraced like not only trying to become comic book people so that they have a better understanding of what this is, but also they all understand the gravity of like, we're playing these characters that people have an emotional attachment to that goes back years. Yeah. Uh, and I appreciate that. Uh, and I also joked, I'm like, what does it say about Rick's experiences with fandom that the two people who are really big comic book fans on the cast are, uh, are uh, the the guys who play, the villains, because it's Victor and Chico. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, those guys are big comic book guys in real life, and it's—I'm just kind of like, there's something really hilarious about the fact that uh, the, the two guys who actually, like, probably grew up wanting to be superheroes uh, are—they are, get a comic book role, and it's like, yeah, uh, I'm going to have to crush people.
1: <laughs> yeah, I like them, by the way. Oh, she yeah,
0: yeah. I liked mm-hmm. him a lot, and I liked the fact that um, Victor and Brandy were present mm-hmm. in this, because obviously they weren't really... like. Even looking at the first trade paperback, Victor and Brandy aren't particularly important. They're not really front and center. No. And they don't need to be, per se, but I like the fact that they are there in the pilot, because knowing what we do as comic book people about how important they become later on... Uh, it it feels like you know there was this thing when Veronica Mars was on that first season, the the showrunner had had said in some interview that the mystery always like the the answer to the mystery is always more fulfilling if the suspect has been there from the very beginning. Ah, uh, I like that, and I feel like it's it's like that that's one of the reasons that the the killer on that show had like a brief cameo in the pilot because it was they he he wanted to say yep, he was there all along. You just have to be paying attention. Mm -hmm. And I feel the same way with Victor and Brandy, where it's just like, this is really Chico's story right now. Mm -hmm. And obviously his performance was really great. But at the same time, we as comic book people know, eventually these characters are going to be really important. And so it was nice that they got kind of moments to be present.
1: I mean, they kind of gave um, Victor a little bit of motive. Yeah. To uh, like be against some of these characters. I mean, that scene was hilarious. I love it. Yeah, yeah. That and was that was
0: cool. a that's a that was a great use of uh, of Rollins too. Like, not just because obviously you want as much Rollins as you can in it, mm-hmm. but because uh, that particular persona that they gave the, the teacher really plays to his strengths as a physical presence. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, that was a fun scene. But it also was like you know it justifies the Rollins thing. Uh, not that it really needs to be justified. He's a good actor. And obviously like he brings something to the show, but the fact that it was so clearly like, just holy crap, I get to work with Henry Rollins. Like if you listen to that image comics podcast that Rick Remender was on, it's Mm -hmm. kind of adorable how excited he is. (laughs) And so uh, to me, it's like, you don't need a justification per se, but it's always nice when the role justifies the stunt casting.
1: Yep. Yep. And another th- thing about that scene, too, for, like, a lot of my friends who watched it, it actually gave them, like... Like, not that, not that the opening scene didn't do it, but they really understood, like, what kind of school this was. Yeah. And so they told them to, like, nope, sit in it, learn, and learn from your shame. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, they were like, wow. They made, they made him poop himself. Like, they couldn't believe a different scene.
0: And, I, you know, I also really like... Uh, I, I liked the, the resolution of that scene, where he's like, you do this and you get a mop because it's just like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to let you get away with this only in the sense that I'm going to force this other person to live with their mistake. But you still were, you were were still disobedient in my class. So you're going to have to clean it up. Exactly. (laughs) So
1: King's dominion.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Oh man. That was just, that was just great all around. Uh, and, and again, like I, I liked the, uh, I liked the chase sequence for me. Uh, I do like the fact that, you know, in the first issue of the comic, because it's it's only 20 pages of comic or whatever it is, that is like a lot of the issue. It takes up a lot of real estate and it's the thing that leaves the most impression on you
1: Yeah,
0: here. It's like the first big action beat and it's a lot of fun, but it doesn't. Eat up half the pilot or anything. It's kind of there and then it's done and then Marcus is a Kings.
1: Yeah, it doesn't linger at all.
0: Uh, so pacing-wise, I liked the way that they dealt with that. And I liked the fact that, you know, when you look at The Walking Dead as a good example, like that's a fantastic pilot. But if I if I had a criticism, it's that they really tried to Approximate the feeling of the first few issues of the comic by having it be basically just Rick wandering around for the first hour. It's very slow. And so by the time he gets to where he needs to be, it's over. And you're just like, well, that was a beautiful pilot, but like, what the hell?
1: <laughs> it, I think it was kind of smart too, because like, like what Cleaver Matt- <laughs> said earlier, like, like a lot of the beginning, he said, like, we'll just mark his like monologuing, you know, sulking, and then boom, action beat. Yeah pretty early and it's it's not too long boom back to the medium so
0: yeah and i I will say too i tend to be i I, i'm not as like anti monologue slash talking to the audience as a lot of people are (laughs) but i do think it has to be done right and it's dicey uh and so the amount of kind of monologuing to the camera That or not to the camera, but monologuing to the audience that happens in this show could easily have gone wrong if the rest of the show wasn't so good. I agree, and and I think that it it says a lot about the screenplay of this episode that not only was the rest of the show strong enough to support that, but also the like the actual dialogue, like the actual thing, and then uh, Wadsworth's performance were both really rock solid because like any one of those things could have failed it. And then that monologue wouldn't have worked and you'd be in the ADR booth trying to fix it.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, but I mean, it it, hit on, it clicked on all cylinders. So yeah. Excited well, to see what, what we're going to get next. I mean, I mean it just went I mean, up. Do you know how long it's going to be for a season, by the way?
0: I think it's 10 episodes. Um, if I had to guess, I think that the, the, the season finale will be March 20th. Because Happy comes back on March twenty seventh and I haven't looked at a calendar yet to to make sure, but I last year Happy was Wednesdays at ten. So if I had to guess, uh this will leave and happy will take its place. Okay, like the week after. Yeah. Um which which again kind of it, it kind of jives because I think that most of the, the sci fi shows, their first season is like ten episodes. And so if you start today and run for 10 episodes, it probably takes you to right around March 20th. All right, though. But, yeah, so that's uh, – it's, it's, it's not going to be a super long season, which I actually like. I actually was just engaged in, like, this long Twitter conversation with people about how, like, I enjoy the heck out of, like, this, the superhero shows – but the thing that Shield and Gotham have been doing, where they split things up into acts, is advantageous to them in a way that the Arrowverse shows don't have. Because, like, you get halfway through the season, and it's like I don't, I don't care what
1: you Cicada so, is doing anymore. So much filler with yeah. those CW shows because their seasons are like twenty-three episodes, where it's like. Oh my like like like, like yeah, oh my I, god. I don't, I don't think it's any
0: I don't think it's any coincidence at all that last year everybody pretty much uniformly agreed that the two best superhero shows on the CW were Black Lightning and Legends, and both of those were fifteen episodes or less. Yeah. You know?
1: I mean even like DC Universe, like Titans that's like eleven episodes and
0: they're like, boom, yeah. done. Rotated young
1: justice That's like
0: I think long. I think too that when you look at the stuff that's on the streaming networks, the stuff that's on uh, Netflix and everything, you're seeing that as kind of the the dominant uh, kind of peak TV model. You know, Mm -hmm. you look at AMC and it's like, even the walking dead, which has, I think like 18 episodes a season, they split it up into, you know, nine and nine. And there's like a three month hiatus in between. And so I, I do think that people are getting to the point now, especially with these really high stakes shows where, every episode has to be the most urgent thing that's ever happened. It's like, man, you get burned out. If you have to watch 10, 12 weeks in a row of that.
1: I agree. You got I mean, I, th- I do think downtime and stuff is very important. It just, yeah. sometimes you just, you just like this, like you, you watch a season of like splash and you're like, this could be the 14 episodes. It didn't need to be yeah. 23.
0: Yeah. And again, like this is coming from, uh, at least for me, this is coming from somebody who genuinely likes those shows. But I kind of every time I look at a new show and it's 10, 13 episodes instead of 20-something, I'm like, oh, thank God.
1: (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That's a good length. Especially, like, eventually they're going to be, like, 40 to
0: 50 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because last year, uh, by the time Krypton was done, that was a show that just got better and better as the season went on. So by the time it was done, you're like, oh, my God, I'm going to miss this show so much. But it's like, you know what? I, I would rather that they had the 10 episodes they had and leave me missing it. Um, Cause if it ran for 16, just because they knew that people were going to be excited, <laughs> then you wouldn't have had the same kind of visceral impact that that finale had.
1: You know, I totally forgot to watch that.
0: <laughs> it was, it was a good show. It was, uh, it, it helped that when we did the set visit last year, uh, a, a buddy of mine and I were just sitting around the table between interviews like, shooting the breeze kicking around some ideas for like what we would do if it was our show and uh we we inadvertently guessed the big twist of the season oh okay <laughs> and the publicist the publicist heard us and like panicked she's like please don't write that hold on and she like brought the showrunner back and did a second interview with the room and it was like okay you nine people are the only ones who are going to have this interview but you have to hold it until you know april of 25th or whatever it was um, so it was like it was one of those things where once that happens, you're just like, man, uh, we're clearly on the inner circle on this show because uh, the 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 guy came into the room and he's like, you know, I was talking to you guys, and I'm like, one of these people is going to figure it out.
1: <laughs> That's funny.
0: <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a really good show. And, and again, like it, I think sci-fi is doing really well with its comic book adaptations. I really like happy. Uh, I, I really, really like Wynonna Earp. It's, it's a, a great example of a show that was good in its first season, but has just gotten better every single, every single year. And so I'm, I'm really hoping that, uh, that we get additional seasons of deadly class, not just cause I'm super excited about it, but also because I do think that, that, that sci-fi is on a hot streak and that in all likelihood if we get three seasons of this you know three seasons plus then that's going to be a lot of good hours of tv
1: i think the pilot the pilot was a good sign of what's to come i think it's i think we'll get renewed for second season for
0: sure i think so i mean certainly they're they're very high on it obviously they've i've never seen them blitz anything advertising wise the way they seem to have blitzed deadly class and uh uh 2.77 million people have watched it, you know, by legal downloads in the time since they released it a month and a half ago, which I mean, granted is not a massive number, but at the same time, that's basically the audience of an episode of the flash. And that's way bigger than sci-fi ever gets, especially for a show at 10 at night and more more well-known like, yeah, a
1: lot of people. I I, I say deadly class. They're like, I don't, I don't know what that is.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so so I th- I think that it's in a it's well positioned. Certainly, obviously, anything can happen on TV, and you never know what what's going through people's heads. But I yeah. think that probably we'll get at least a second season out of this show, and and so that's that's pretty exciting. Uh, trying also, to think.
1: I also like that they. Dropped uh, issue thirty six with the, the same. Data oh yeah,
0: and, yeah, and uh, and it was a nice. It was a nice kind of uh, thing too because they did, uh, you know, spoilers for number thirty six. But the, it was a essentially a, a peyote uh, trip, uh, vision quest. Thank you. That's what I was coming up. Okay. Uh, like a vision quest kind of issue, and so you get a lot of elements in that issue that tie into the core themes of the book, because you've got a person who's looking inside of themselves and examining their goals and their blah, 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 and their past and their future. And so you get a lot of like, there's, there's reiterations of the most important themes of the comic. There's people who have been gone for a while who make a brief kind of hallucinatory guest appearance And so it it very much was without going backwards. It was very much a a, a issue that if you watched the pilot and liked it, you could pick that up and get pretty much everything you need. I I get your say. And so that was like, that's always a plus. And then like, the last few pages of the issue, it's kind of a, a declaration of purpose for what this next arc is about. And so it's kind of the nice combination of like, yeah, this is an entry point for new people, but at the same time, it wasn't wasted time for people who've already been around for 35 issues.
1: Yeah, huh? I mean, that's going to be crazy. Not gonna say, I'm not going to say what ha- was happening. But yeah, like, yeah,
0: exactly. Uh, so to me, it's it's one of those things. It, was, it not only was it nice to see them tie in to the comic, but also it was nice to see that the way they executed that... Actually, really worked to service both. Yep. Um, all right, I should probably let you go. But any, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Because uh, obviously, uh, I've, I've been talking, and, and you are the one who hasn't had a chance to talk yet.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, uh, it was a really good. It was a really good pilot. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm very excited to see more of Maria. Maria. I just learned that her real yeah. name is actually Maria too. So that's that's just kind of fun. And no, actually, no. I don't know. I don't know. I talked to talk to you guys the last time. Never mind. Yeah. I need that. I need it need before. But I like, cause she's my, she's my favorite character. So like, I, yeah. I'm like excited to see more about her. I do like what she, I do like what she did in the first episode. Like, um, yeah. her and Chico stuff. So that was, that was good. I feel yeah. like, I feel like the scene that I'm forgetting that, that, that I'm trying to remember.
0: Yeah. Really I'm kind enjoyed. of going through on, on, on a kind of mental timeline and just trying to make sure that we've talked about all the kind of biggest beats. Um,
1: I mean there was the i mean there was the past right with, with yeah. the sun the sunset sunset what was it called again you remember the, the boys home
0: the Boy's home yeah. yeah
1: and then there was um i I mean the preview was pretty good, so if you're gonna mm-hmm. see a lot, a snippet of what's to come to mm-hmm. that was that was enjoyable. I like the soundtrack by the way I forgot to yes. of that
0: yeah good choice. You're- the music was great and the score was really good because you have that thing where, uh, it's, it's like, it's a balancing act trying to score a show that is so defined by its pop music soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And, and so I thought that they did a pretty good job of, of making the, like the diegetic music, uh, or the, you know, the non-diegetic music and the the diegetic music kind of fit together. (laughs) Uh,
1: but I think everyone nailed it.
0: I liked I like
1: everyone's performance. Yeah, I think the I think the only one that I, I maybe be a little like I need to see a bit more of is um is Petra. Yeah, she was. She was I don't have an issue with her. I just it, like like if if I didn't if like if I didn't read it, I wouldn't have known who she was, kind of thing. Yeah,
0: I, yeah. No, I get that. She was pretty understated in the pilot. Yeah. Um, they you get I, I will say because I've seen the second episode. You get you get a lot more of Petra and Lex in the second episode. All right, cool. Uh, no. And it's funny uh, the kid who plays Lex. Uh, I, I I kept looking at him when I first saw the pilot, and I'm like, man, he could be a great like young John Constantine if Legends ever like went back to the '80s and needed somebody to play the young Matt Ryan. Uh,
1: I have, have to look at him again to, 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 to see, but.
0: Well, well the, the funny thing about it is that I said that and then somebody pointed out to me, they're like, no, he's already been in Legends. I was like, what? And it's like, huh. yeah, there was there was an episode earlier this season where they, they went back to the 70s and there was a punk band and he was in the band. Oh, wow. And I was like, holy shit, you're right. I had no idea. And it's like, I was literally at Legends the week after I saw the, the uh, Deadly Class pilot. If I would have known that, I would have like asked literally anybody who worked with him to give me a quote for the, you know, about deadly class. Uh, but yeah, of, it was just one of those wacky nine,
1: things. Like nine, I honestly think it like, it's like a nine, at
0: least like a yeah. Yeah, out of 10. Yeah. Really? Like I said, I, I, the headline that I had was that it was one of the best comic book pilots, uh, ever made. And I, I totally stand by that. And it, I always like, people are like, well, that's a lot of, and I'm like, no, it's not because for me, uh, Pilot episodes are, are a special thing. Like, it's basically a movie. But at the same time, like saying this has one of the best pilots I've ever seen, it's not like I'm immediately saying, like, this is one of the best shows ever. Cause, like, you know, shows don't necessarily, aren't necessarily represented their pilot all the time. Uh, you know, you can have great shows with mediocre pilots. You can have mediocre shows with great pilots, but I do think that this is an excellent starting point. And I don't personally think, given the pieces that they have in place, that this is going to be an example of like a great pilot that that goes downhill quickly.
1: I feel it, and I mean, like in my mind, the only thing I could really think like a comic book kind of mm-hmm. thing. in I my mind was Smallville. I really yeah perception.
0: Yeah, and that's that's a good example of a show. Like that show ran for ten years, and at the end of its run, when people did their lists of like the ten best episodes of Smallville ever made, that pilot was still number one on most of those lists. It's a great first episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, where can people find you on on the internet?
1: Yeah, I should have I should have pulled it up so I could. I, <laughs> uh, you can find me on on uh, Twitter, uh, Lita Zenpai, Um l o l i t a z e n p i e chat with me i mean i'm just kind of a a a, a timeline nuisance to just talk about
0: stuff
1: <laughs> out comics everything you know and then uh hemmings if you want to subscribe to my youtube channel
0: awesome and yeah uh for me i will i will tell everybody where they can find me at the end of the conversation with nicole because we recorded that weeks ago and i, I already did that So uh, thank you so much, man. And I'm looking forward to uh, the the three of us actually talking about something, uh, you know, together at the same time next time around. I'm one of your hosts, Russ Berlingame, and with me tonight is one of your other hosts, Nicole Drum. Hello! We both write for ComicBook.com, and so we have seen the pilot already uh, a couple of times, actually, because it it just finally, it just got officially released on the Sci-Fi website. Tonight, as we're recording this, it'll be last night by the time you hear it. But uh, this is going to be our non-spoiler uh it's not going to be too deep a dive but we're going to talk about our kind of first impressions of the pilots and what we hope for the show and then uh, next time we're going to include at least one and possibly two more uh co-hosts and we'll be talking a lot more in depth uh the thrust of this show as if you couldn't have guessed by clicking through it is we're going to be talking about not only the deadly class television show that coming that's coming to sci-fi in January of 2019 but also the comic book by uh, Rick Remender, who's the showrunner on the TV show, artist Wes Craig, letterer Russ Wooten, and colorist Lee Lowridge. Uh, we're going to essentially do one episode each on issues of the comic and episodes of the show and do a kind of deep dive. Uh, if you've ever heard uh, From Crisis to Crisis, the, the podcast that Michael Bailey and Jeff uh, – I've just totally blanked on Jeff's last name. Sorry, Jeff. But Michael Bailey and Jeff do, uh, about the 1986 to 2005 Superman books, uh, where they do a very deep dive into each one looking at, you know, art and themes and all that kind of crap that that's kind of what we want to do with deadly class, which is, uh, kind of under examined. I mean, th- there's, there's a lot of writing about it in comics circles, but, uh, the first thing I did when I got the idea to do this podcast was kind of look and make sure that nobody was already doing a fan podcast and for a comic this popular, from a writer as popular as Rick, I was kind of surprised that I was the first one doing it, as far as I can tell.
2: Well, I think that while it is definitely a very popular uh, popular comic, I mean, I've I've read comics my whole life. I've heard of it. I think for even for being a well-known comic from a very popular writer, to an extent, I think for some people, there probably has a bit of a niche feel to it. Because I'm going to be completely honest. Um, I had never actually read the comics until... The show kind of of talked about, and I decided like you know what let's let's check this out. And man, I had missing
0: out. Yeah, it's a it's a great book, and I've I've been I had been intermittent essentially on the book. Uh, I, when Deadly Class first got announced, I'm pretty sure it was during that Image Expo where Rick had like five titles that got announced or some crazy thing. It was like low. And uh, this one and, and the mythology one and like all this crazy stuff. And it was just like, holy crap, he's just setting up a house over here. um, and, uh, and all of the books sounded pretty good. And they've all been kind of to varying degrees, really enjoyable books. And they've all had longevity to varying degrees, depending on the schedules of Rick and the artist. But uh, Deadly Class definitely has been the one that kind of broke out the biggest because even before the tv show it was the one that people talked about a lot i think uh the while i love the art on some of Remender's other image comics books i do think that wes craig's very kind of visceral blend of a like late 90s vertigo aesthetic with animation influences and and stuff like that it it makes for a really unique look to the comic and I think that's part of what helped it to kind of break out of the pack.
2: Absolutely. And I think that you're dead on with your description of that. Um, as a you know, long-time interested, first-time reader type of situation here, one of the very first things that I was really struck at as I kind of flipped through it was how it had this very cinematic but also very gritty kind of almost noir-like but not really look that was completely different than anything I've ever really seen. And I read a lot of comics.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, it's funny because the first issue and and uh, also the first 15 minutes or so of the pilot really kind of reminded me of the first issue of The Invisibles. Did you ever read that with the, the Grant Morrison book? Uh, I, and, and to be honest, there are elements of Jack Frost that you can see in Marcus throughout the comic. And I think we're going to see that reflected uh, in, in the TV series where Marcus is maybe not your traditional hero archetype. You know, a lot of the time, Jack Frost was really only the protagonist because he was the nominal protagonist. You kind of wanted to slap him. Um, and and so I always feel like it's a little ballsy to do that with your protagonist because uh, it shows a confidence in your supporting cast that, uh, that a lot of writers don't necessarily have. Because I think a lot of writers get really precious about their lead.
2: Well, I also think it also kind of in a sense, tells a better story because there's a lot of, even outside of the world of comics, there's a lot of structure in storytelling where you've got your protagonist, your hero character, and there are little boxes that you check off. I know in a previous life when I was teaching creative writing, one of the things that we taught was like, this is your hero, this is your protagonist, these are the things, the slots you have to fill to tell a story. And by basically thinking like you said, a cut in a slap, um, as your protagonist, not only is it a confidence that you've got this supporting cat around it, you're telling a story that, in a very real way, is going to be a lot more identifiable for your reader, or in this case, your audience, on the show as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to get more investment, because here is this character who's flawed, who annoys you, who maybe makes you mad, and you, before you know it, you're hooked, in, and that's admittedly, that's probably what really sucked me into reading the comics for Dudley Class. Mm-hmm. I intended to read, like, one issue at a time, my time. And I was so, both, I had this really strange reaction to Marcus, or very very immediately, both this weird mix of sad and pity, and also, I just want to choke this kid out, that made me want to keep reading because I kept getting invested more than I would have if it were more traditional. Hero
0: or Agnes character. Yeah, and also one of the things you see, and and like without spoiling anything, it, it certainly bears out in the comics, and I think you see it in, in the Invisibles too, is that when you start with a character who is so frustrating, uh, it gives you a lot of places to go with their character arc. And it allows you to really build to a place where people are invested in the character because you've seen where they've gone over a course of time. <laughs>
2: Absolutely, it sets up for a lot of
0: character growth and in some cases regret it. Mm-hmm. So let's jump into the pilot a little bit because uh, obviously we're gonna we're gonna end up talking about all of this over again when we have our co-hosts with us. But uh, I, if you want to read kind of an in-depth review that I did, which is also pretty non-spoilery, uh, you can head over to comicbook.com and uh, I did a, a review there. Both of the executive producers, Rick Remender and uh, Miles. Uh, Feld Scott Orion there. Or I, I can never remember <laughs> um, uh, his, he's, he's got a very long name, but both Rick and miles have every retweeted the, uh, the review. So you could probably find it more easily there than you can at comic book almost because comic book updates so often. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, I said, it's, it's one of the best comic book pilots I've ever seen. Uh, I don't think that inherently means, holy crap guys, this is going to be the best comic book show of all time. Cause you know, a lot of really good shows had not so great pilots, you know? Uh, and, and then you get a lot of shows that have a terrific pilot and kind of even out and become kind of middle of the road over time. I think like Lois and Clark is a great example of that. Uh, Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman had a pilot that I would say is on par with the best Superman feature films in terms of like a standalone story that introduces you to Lois and Clark and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but by about halfway through the third season, you were just like, make it end.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that particular pilot started off great. And it took you want a slow train to no nope kill.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. But you know. but, uh, but yeah, so I, I think this is a terrific pilot. I think uh, Lee Tolenkrieger, who directed it, is one of these guys who is going to become a go-to name for pilots. You know, you have certain directors uh, who when you need, when you have a lot of money invested in the pilot, you have a lot of blah, blah, blah. You need the pilot to hit. There are certain directors that you turn to and you're like, okay, this guy's going to nail it. You know, Glenn winner is one of those guys. Um, and I think Lee Toland Krieger has become that very quickly. He's the guy who directed, uh, the Riverdale pilot. Uh, as a result of Riverdale, he got the Sabrina pilot. He did this one. He also did a show last year for, uh, the CW called, uh, life sentence, which was not a great show, but it, Visually, was a really kind of cool, interesting show, and I think that that palette was probably set by Krieger in the same way that he set uh, kind of the, the cinematic language of Riverdale and Deadly Class going into it.
2: And one of the things I want to point out, um, as you're mentioning, these other really truly fantastic pilots that he's done, um, because all the ones you named were good, even like Sentence, which. Yeah, it wasn't the best show, but it was really beautifully done in the pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, they, none of them look alike. Yeah. like Most of the times when you've got a director, you're going to see kind of their fingerprints in places on it. And while I was watching Deadly Class, I kind of had in the back of my head, you know, these are some other things that he has done, but I, it was completely unique in its own.
0: Yeah. I, I, it's I, I...
2: incredible, especially for such an identifiable story
0: yeah it's a huge credit to this pilot it's funny i think if there was anything that i could kind of point to and be like oh that's that's lethal and true krieger it's it's the use of reds but and, and that's just because red is so prevalent in riverdale uh however it's also incredibly prevalent in deadly class the comic book yeah. and so it's almost kind of like is that really him or is that just that he was tapped to adapt something that you know kind of speaks to something he's already done
2: well, I think the thoughts of just the use of, you know, the show's mentioned all kind of have, for lack of a better term, sort of a bloody element to them. Yeah. And what else are you going to use The red? Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably almost like an accidental signature, um, because if you think about light sentence, there wasn't a whole lot of red in that pilot.
0: No, no. It was a lot of yellows and a lot of yeah. kind of melons.
2: Very, um, very birds and happiness. Yeah. That the class is not at <laughs> nope. no, but it is beautiful
0: yeah yeah it's and again it's it's i haven't really dug into the, there 's a few more screeners on the press site and i haven 't really dug into them yet to see kind of what we 're looking at, but I am excited to see kind of what carries through uh you know once you get the next set of directors in, obviously with t v you, you set up a lot of things in the pilot and then the producers are the ones who carry it through and, and directors are essentially guns for hire. Right. Um, so when you have somebody who's a really kind of pervasive director, it's interesting to kind of look at that and go, okay, so what did he leave behind for the next people to work with? Uh, I do think Krieger as he was on Sabrina is a producer on this show And so probably he was involved with more than just the pilot. He was probably involved with setting setting up a lot of stuff so that the look stays consistent.
2: I think um, one of the things I really noticed in the pilot, you will craft the use of music. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that even if there are visual changes as you go director to director, um, my hope is that 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 heartbeat of music will continue and kind of create a connected issue. Um, yeah, I'm very very excited. In the comics, each issue also kind of has a slightly different look. Yeah, so, but there's still that like, undercurrent. So it's kind of hopeful that even with different directors, we're going to continue to have that fantastic music undercurrent because it really does help carry the story without actually interfering.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see how the the show evolves from here, kind of sonically. I think that one of the things, when you look at the, the the pilot, there's a lot of music in there. It's like, wow, we spent a lot of money clearing music probably. And for a lot of shows, I think that you would cut back on that after the pilot. I kind of feel like Deadly Class won't, in part because when we did the set visit and I was talking to members of the cast and all this kind of stuff, uh, they talked about how Rick Remender had created playlists for them and given them each playlist that were specific to their character and specific to the, to the era. Cause obviously it's set in the late eighties in kind of the punk underground scene in the West coast. And uh, the fact that he was kind of inundating the actors with that and helping like using that to shape their, their uh, take mm-hmm. tells me that that's something that's going to be important to them going forward. Uh, when I got a press kit a couple of weeks ago, they actually included a Bluetooth speaker with it, and a like a, a SKU code or whatever you call those things, uh, a QR code, yeah. so that you could click, so you could uh, kind of click into a Spotify playlist that was uh, the the soundtrack essentially to the pilot plus one or two extra things.
2: Yeah, that definitely does seem to indicate that they're going to keep that going, which yes. uh, I think really will help not that the pilot didn't do an excellent job of setting the scene visually it absolutely did i'm mm-hmm. you know i'm old enough to remember 1987 yeah and what it looked like sound like felt like and yeah. i very much was like oh my god my childhood <laughs> a couple of times which it was a little, a little unnerving, but in a good way. Um, yeah. I really think that there are elements here and there that kind of pull you up just a little bit, just by nature, of it's not actually 1987. Yeah. It will continue to keep you rooted in that time and also help you better understand some of the characters. I know specifically um, it really helped me kind of lock into Billy a little bit. Yeah. Just because, you know, Punk Rock sound, his look
0: it mm-hmm. really just drove it
2: home to me a lot more clearly than it did in print.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I will say to Liam James, first of all, he's great in this. Uh, secondly, uh, I had this great story. Uh, we went out to dinner with the casting crew when we did the set visit, uh, Liam sat across from me at the table and we got along really well. We talked about music and podcasts and all this kind of crap. And, At the end of the night, I had told him I was going to bring him the first trade for Transmetropolitan because he wasn't a big comic book reader prior to taking the job. Mm -hmm. And I got back to my hotel room and I'm like, okay, I got to write myself a note, get him this comic for at New York Comic Con. Liam, what was his name? Liam James? No, that's the guy from Psych. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I had had completely not connected uh, during the hour and a half that we were sitting there talking that uh, I'd seen him in like 60 episodes of Psych as young Sean. That's
2: actually pretty impressive i mean you know now that you mentioned i actually i have also seen psych yeah not to the level that you have admittedly i don't think i'm quite that deep i can say 60 episodes um but until you said that i hadn't even thought about him being in that yeah yeah so that's yeah that's a testament to how well he's playing that character
0: and i'll, I'll share a a clip from the new york comic-con red carpet where uh luke tenney who plays willie had a similar reaction, and uh, Luke is a big fan as well of, of Psych and had no idea... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh. <laughs> that is the guy yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 he told me that the first day we met he's like what yeah because we talked for like a half hour until I realized that the reason he was so familiar is because I grew up watching him on TV uh, well here's why it's embarrassing for me uh, when we were talking about podcasts yeah. I almost told you about one of the podcasts yeah. I, I work on and I was like no I don't want to self promote it's a psych rewatch podcast oh no way <laughs> completely I'm a psycho too man Dude. I've seen every episode so. same man that's, that's, that's one of my show. favorite shows of all yeah. time yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I don't bad. So yeah, yeah, no, not at all. And yeah, that's a, that's another. That was a good thing about the pilot was that uh, you they did a really good job of kind of putting all of the pieces in place on the board. Uh, you know, in both my review and then in our private conversations, we talked about there are people who are addressed differently in the TV show than they are in the first couple of issues of the comic but mostly it's in ways that are going to serve the show long-term. You know, there are certain characters who weren't really presented in the first couple of issues of the comic, but became huge players later. And so those people got at least brief kind of appearances in the pilot to set them up. So they don't seem like they came out of nowhere later.
2: And like you're saying that it's sending things up later and some of the other changes, little tweaks here and there really did make the story flow. Um, flow a little bit better not saying that the books did not um but the way they kind of introduced the story and start bringing in those characters and setting pieces up on this you know on the game board so to speak um really actually did something that i didn't really expect the pilot to do as well as it did and it's like i told you in one of our side conversations it literally looked even though there were differences it was like someone said let's bring this book to life, and poof, there it was, a living, breathing thing. Yeah. It really does jump right off page and onto your screen in a very real way without being a hard and fast clone. Um,
0: Yeah, I kind of want to talk to Wes and see to what extent he used photo references because I feel like uh, a chunk of this is probably that he used photo references for things that actually exist. And so then you could create like wardrobe. That's almost a dead on match or, or you could buy wardrobe. That's a dead on, ma- you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and little things like that, that, that would totally make sense. Uh, otherwise, if that's not the case, then the wardrobe people deserve a ton of credit for kind of reproducing the comic art in a way that feels authentically dated. Cause I will say because of how kind of slick Wes's art is uh it's very it it very much feels like the 80s because of but a lot of that is like the weight of the clothes and the cut of the clothes and like the the, the technology and things like that a lot of the time you can kind of look at characters and not necessarily because of the kind of simple iconic ways that he draws faces and hair and stuff it doesn't look immediately like you know it's not stranger things where everybody has like the bangs and the waves uh and, and so it's it's funny because at a time when I think some people will dismiss this for the first little bit because like, oh, more 80s nostalgia, boo. Uh, yeah, it takes place in the 80s, but that it doesn't really revel in the 80s that something in the way that something like it does.
2: It doesn't really feel like it. I mean, it's the 80s. You know, it's the 80s, but it doesn't feel that way. And I think part of it is that it, everything is put together. In a way where it's not let's beat you over the head with nostalgia. Yeah. It's also, the things it chooses and selectively kind of waits here and there has so much relevance with more contemporary things.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: speaking to like the details both in the book because even the book doesn't hit you over the head with the eighties as hard as.
0: Yeah. Me. No, not at all.
2: But I've got to say, I have to give a shout out to whoever is doing Maria's makeup. Oh yeah. Like, not only are we talking about her her full-on, you know, her whole look, but even just her normal I'm-not-wearing-full-face look. Yeah. It was so incredible and so well-detailed that, like, it actually took me a second to, like, convince my brain, no, that's really makeup. That That's not somebody put a mask. That's not, I mean, it was... Yeah. Done. Well, and that's one of the things, reading the comics, I wondered how that would translate, and it's yeah. phenomenal
0: yeah, I think one of the things that's really that really works about the pilot is uh, to a large extent, the characters in the comics are archetypes. Mm. And the difficulty with archetypes is that they can become they can become stereotypes if you're not careful. And I think that the comic does a pretty good job of not having that happen. But in TV, because everything has to be kind of dumbed down a little bit for a broader audience, you really run the risk of that. And so far from what we've seen in the pilot, they've managed to not fall into the, like, the tropes of, like, the Yakuza princess and the cartel, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, it's all, like, you still maintain the individuality of the characters. It doesn't feel like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, this is this character. This is this. Uh, so I, I felt like that that was a concern that I had with Maria's look because had it not been as kind of well done as it was it could have felt like really she's in day of the dead makeup awesome you know
2: yeah um i think that with that particular one i without spoiling anything there's a particular scene that i wondered if would make it to to the episode and Mm -hmm. uh, and i remember thinking this can go either really well or this is going to be so cardboard yeah, uh, it, it's going to just completely lose the interest of that character, which, you know, if you read the comics, Maria is, you know, a very interesting character. Yeah.
0: yeah. And and one of the things that I talked about when I talked to them in New York is the fact that almost everybody in this comic is trying to manipulate almost everybody else. Really, you have Marcus, who is essentially what you see on the tin. And everybody else is, to varying degrees, trying to play everyone around them. And probably outside of Shabnam, um, the, the most effective player of people around her is Maria in a lot of ways.
2: Oh, yeah. And I have to say, you know, the actress really does a good job of um, making it where you, you know that, but it, she does it in such a way that it, it feels natural. Yeah. And that's, and that's a hard, that's, in any, any character's should be writing or actually and that's a hard, that's a hard thing to get right.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's really interesting because a lot of the things, it's funny because we keep saying like, oh, I was worried this wouldn't work. I was worried this wouldn't work. It's not because it doesn't work in the comics. It's because comics and TV are two different mediums and they have different needs and different tropes and different everything. And so there's a lot of things that you see them in the comics and you're like, yeah, this works totally well in a comic book, but, like, how is it going to translate? Absolutely. And and so when we're talking about this kind of stuff, a lot of it boils down to, like, there are moments in the comics where you're like, this totally works because it's comics, and I'm reading between the gutters, and I'm, like, I have context, and I have, you know. Uh, the The actors have to put a lot more kind of didactic... Stuff into it to really tell you, like, this is what we're doing, this is what you're looking at, and sell it with their performance because there's not beats in between the in, in between the moments for you to process your own take on it.
2: Just when it in a television or any visual like movie media, you also don't have the luxury of having the entire spread open in front of you.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: you're only seeing. In, in a very real way, comic books is literally like, comic book television comic book movies is literally like seeing one panel at a time mm-hmm. as opposed to that big spread, especially when there are large action sequences yeah um, which is you know, one of the scenes that I was wondering how would translate
0: yeah uh one of the things that's really fun actually watching this pilot is uh knowing that there's a scene where Billy. Uh, decks a guy with his skateboard uh, during the uh, the kind of escape scene, mm-hmm. and uh, on set they were talking about they have like the two real skateboard decks that he uses, and then there's there's like stunt decks. So there's one that looks exactly perfect, but it's rubber. And so whenever he's hitting somebody with the the skateboard and he's using it as a weapon, it's always like a rubber deck. Uh, so that both people, you know, stunt performers don't get hurt, and also so that the, the, the skateboard doesn't get broken and have to be replaced.
2: I hadn't thought about the not breaking the skateboard element of it, but
0: yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those things <laughs> where makes total sense, and especially, like, I don't know if that was a, a, a built skateboard or if it was, a, a, like, a vintage 80s skateboard that they acquired a couple copies of. Uh, I assume it was probably built because that's just easier for the purposes of like, you can just three D print another one if you need to. Right, but God knows.
2: I also feel like finding exact duplicates of like a vintage skateboard would be yeah. incredibly difficult to do.
0: Yeah, exactly. Especially if it was a popular enough skateboard for where people actually used it. Absolutely. Like, not. it's not like it's not like toys and movies where people keep it in the wrapper because like they never got around to it, or because they are keeping it on a shelf for you know.
2: Yeah, the skateboard thing all kinds of crazy and well-worn yeah. to of pride.
0: Yeah. But yeah, one of the, the things, and I, th- I think this is where we started and then I, we already got off track, but one of the things I really liked is the fact that some of the characters who don't get a ton of screen time, and Billy's a great example, uh, the other people I called out in my review were Lex and uh, and Brandy. Mm-hmm. Because they don't have much time, they really have to kind of own the screen whenever they're in a sh- in a shot. And I think that uh, the the actors who have less screen time in the pilot do a really excellent job of communicating kind of quickly and effectively through simple iconic uh, kind of actions and lines uh, kind of who they are and you get a really good kind of quick shorthand of like okay it's it's this, it's this, it's this
2: Andy in particular made me so uncomfortable oh yeah I in moment and. Yeah, you're right. you've got a lot of screen time there, but what screen time is there, it's
0: sticking with you. Yeah,
2: like, like I already want to see more of Randy. I, I know it's a ways off, but I already. Yeah, to
0: see more. yeah. I, I also want to say too, uh, in terms of you were talking about Maria's makeup, uh, have you seen what Siobhan Williams actually looks like?
2: You know what? I don't think I actually have, but I've been marveling at her hair in this.
0: Yeah, well, it, that's a wig. Uh,
2: I was going to hope so because no, that's definitely that really is like big Christian hair right there.
0: Yeah. And that's, she has like, uh, I literally just looked John
2: William's up to see yeah. what she looks like in real life. What a transformation.
0: Yeah. And so the, the makeup team on this, on this show does an excellent job. <laughs> the one thing that uh, they, they have like, they, they have workarounds for everything, you know, obviously you have workarounds for, uh, Sia's tattoos, so poor Lana has to go in there for like three hours before you start shooting and all that, and get all that stuff applied. But uh, the the one thing that uh, uh, I didn't even notice when we were on set because I didn't think about it, everybody was in wardrobe. Uh, but then I saw um, Benjamin Watts Wattsworth at uh, at New York Comic Con, and I'm like, oh yeah, he still has the notch in his eyebrow because there's just no way around it. Like he just has to shave a little notch uh, to accommodate the scar that he has uh, in the show. But uh, like it's the one thing that the the makeup team isn't doing uh, that he has to actually like do and keep. Uh, well, I guess that and Billy's Billy's uh, mohawk.
2: Yeah, that's the thing you can't really
0: fake either. Yeah. Also, by the way, uh, this is a random this is a random kind of side thing, but uh, uh, the actor who plays Lex on it was on a, a recent episode of Legends of Tomorrow. Yeah, he was uh, he was one of the guys in the band on uh, Dancing Queen. You're right. And it's funny because as I was watching this pilot the first time, I kept thinking, like, if they ever do a flashback episode where you need a young John Constantine, he'd be perfect. Because he, he's such a dead ringer for uh, some of the, the mannerisms that Matt has in that role. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, I looked him up, literally the two screen credits that, that he has on IMDb are oh, Deadly yeah. Class and Legends. And I was like, wait, what, what was he on Legends? And then I looked, I was like, oh, crap, yeah, that's right. Um
2: uh, that's such a good look for that time period,
0: too. Oh, yeah. It does. Yeah.
2: Like, the casting of this show is so good. Yeah. Like, I have... I, I remember reading, like, just casting information, and, like, I love Benedict Wong. I could not see him as Master Lin. Uh-huh. Like, I had the hardest time wrapping my head around that. And then, you know, you see him in action, and I'm like, that's the only person I can now envision as that woman. But even the kids themselves are, they're also perfectly cast, like...
0: Yeah, and it's its always nice when you get uh, a bunch of folks who you don't know that well, and they're perfectly cast. Mm-hmm. Because it it's like, going in, you don't know what you're looking at. You know, by and large, most people don't have a lot of history with almost any of these actors. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and even when you do, like the fact that so many people don't recognize Liam from Psych, it's like, oh, that's what happens when you're a child actor and then you actually, you know, go to school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I remember looking at the cast list and being like, no, cool. Most of them looked the part, but like I have no idea what to expect because I've never heard of most of these people. Seriously. Uh, and and so that that tends to me to be a credit, almost more of a credit to the casting directors than when you're able to kind of pull together a dream cast. Uh,
2: yeah, it's not easy to get that right straight out of the gate. And yeah, they've nailed it. And even even Henry Rollins. Yeah. Like not I. I I probably, I think I just blanked that out in my mind that he was going to be there. And so when he appeared on screen, I audibly gasped and then it was just such a good fit.
0: It was great. Uh, He, first of all, he got a standing ovation or not a standing ovation. He got an ovation uh, at the screening at New York comic con. Like he appeared on screen and everybody freaked out. Uh, But secondly, uh, there's actually a really great interview. I think it's, I think the podcast is called mirror image Uh, image comics just launched a new uh, podcast that is creators talking to other creators, and you, like usually it's not comic book people talking to comic book people. It's like comic book people talking to actors or painters or musicians or whatever. And it's like everybody's having a dialogue about like what inspires them about the the, the other person's work. And the first episode was Rick Remender talking to Henry Rollins, and the idea that you know when he. Pitched Henry Rollins on coming into Deadly Class, that it was really intimidating because Rollins was like his hero. Oh, wow. And so it was one of those, uh, you know, obviously there's a character who doesn't exist in the comics who was created for the show and created for Henry, Ro- Henry Rollins. Uh, and, and you can listen to a, a really nice interview between Remender and uh, Rollins kind of interviewing one another. Uh, that you can you can track down on the Image Comics website. Or I'm sure Remender probably still has it as a pinned tweet or something, because I feel like if I were him, I wouldn't take that down for months.
2: Well, that, that's what, they, you know, what moms would call a fridger.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
2: Well, in, in terms of, the just to, I to track of that, because it is a character that's created for the show. What I mean by perfect fit is, It literally seamlessly slid right in. Like, oh yeah, that patient. You could say, oh, that's a character that the original. You know, yeah, it's a little totally different.
0: Yeah, yeah, Uh, and I think I think the changes made to the school are are good because uh, you know one of the things that Rick said when we were on set is that. They're going to be able to kind of go deeper into some things, and they're going to be able to explore kind of moments between things. Because obviously, when you're when you're doing a comic, and especially when you're doing a comic that is not publishing on a monthly basis, because you know it's it's the the realities of most image books is that they can't afford to focus exclusively on that book. Right. Uh, so when you're doing a book that's not that's not publishing on a monthly basis, you can't really, unless you're The Walking Dead, you can't spend a whole lot of time just kind of like exploring three months where nothing happens right. and doing like quiet character stuff. And so, you know, the impression I get is they're going to be able to do a lot more with that in the show. And so probably this is not a thing where like, you're going to get to, you know, the end of number 18 and the giant, like, holy crap moment of all of that. Uh, in the first season, like I, I imagine that's going to be like season three, if it happens, you know, but I
2: mean, and the and I think that's I think the pacing even in the pilot already kind of bears that out a little.
0: Yeah, bit. There's,
2: yeah. There's so much more there. There's so much more depth to that. Now that I've, I've seen the pilot, I'm actually going to go back and reread the first issue. Yeah. Because I feel like having seen the pilot, it's going to actually be more kind of inform my reading. Yeah. Of the book even more, and, and vice versa. But definitely, there's the value of not having to have economic
0: with Yeah. Everything. Which is funny because usually it's the opposite. Usually it's like when you're doing another media adaptation, you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars an hour. And so, uh, you have to be more economical. Uh, but the nature of a show like this is you have 30 issues of a comic and you want to show that theoretically go for a hundred episodes. <laughs> and so you get to do stuff that you didn't do already. Uh,
2: I imagine that, you know, Remender's probably got like a bucket of ideas.
0: But oh, yeah. To, I mean,
2: every every writer and every artist has a bucket of ideas for whatever their project is. Yeah. It never makes it to page or never makes it to, it never makes it out of the bucket. And if they have the opportunity to devote the time, the space, and the money to do so, they're going to dip right back into it. Yeah. I, I strongly get the impression that we're going to get to see some of that, and I'm really excited for
0: it. I mean, one thing is, uh, this may when free comic book day rolls around, there's going to be a, uh, free comic book day, one shot. That's a new deadly class story set in the comics past, which is probably the future of the TV show. Uh, but there are a handful of characters who are dead in the comics, but alive on the TV show who are pictured on the cover of that one shot. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, like just that alone it's like okay so you're you're literally creating a story now for the comics that you can then adapt on the tv show if you want to because you've essentially inserted a moment into the past mm-hmm. uh but the other the other change that i really liked at the school is is wong and you kind of talked about how it was hard to see necessarily benedict uh, or lynn <laughs> <Lin>, excuse me <laughs> um, it was hard to see benedict wong uh kind of in the role at first, but uh, I do like the fact that they've changed him from kind of a, this scrawny kind of ancient Mr. Miyagi type into somebody who has a little bit more of a physical presence to him. Mm -hmm. I do think the couple of times that we see him kind of in action in the comics, it tends to be really effective because you see him and he looks like kind of he's got that Bugs Bunny thing where he's all just like tendons and hair. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and so you know, it's uh, like the joke in Fight Club. Abe Lincoln would win the fight because skinny, skinny guys fight till they're burger. Um, but uh, but I think that for a live action adaptation, uh, first of all, you want somebody with more physical presence. And second of all, if you want the show to go more than five years, you don't necessarily want to hire somebody who looks like they're 100 years old.
2: I also think that, and this is not necessarily a critique of the comics, 'Cause I think the comics did a very good job and I think there's some value to having Lynn be that older character. But there's also a little bit of a stereotype of the, the ancient Asian man who's, you know, wise and Yeah ugly, you know, and that, that is such a stereotype and such a deeply entrenched trope that I think that it's a real benefit that they make him younger, more physically present, a little less like you're going to go have, you know, tea and wisdom
0: yeah yeah and again i think part of that was uh i think it's a, a wink and a nod to the 80s i i think that it literally like i i see pat morita in in lynn a little bit and i think it really is like an overt kind of like he's mr miyagi uh
2: Miyagi though not really evil but you know what i
0: mean yeah yeah he's he's the he's the mr miyagi who you would not want to be taking lessons from um but, uh, but I think that in, in the context of the TV show, they leaned away from some of that stuff because they have other ways of signifying the 80s stuff. You know, yeah. uh, the, the world is more immersive. The colors are more immersive. There are things that film does differently than comics. And so I think certain things from the comics that are, that are there in part just to be like, hey guys, it's the 80s. Remember, uh, like they don't have to be there because when you're going through the set, there's VHS tapes on a bunch of shelves, yeah. you know?
2: Well, I think something else the show does, well, speaking in terms of, like, setting setting references to the 80s, um, I think a trap that a lot of shows fall into, and I'm going to call Stranger Things out just a little bit for this. Um, not that I am super deeply into Stranger Things, but just generally, a lot of times when a show does try to go back into a specific place in time, be it the 80s, be it the 90s, they literally saturated with that time period and if you think about how people live through any span of time no one's house is all 1987 yeah yeah neighborhood is all 1993 you're going to get influences of like in 1970 you still had influences of like the late 70s you were still seeing things from 1984 different places and that's something that they do a really good job of yeah in terms of giving you references not just to the specific point in time but what that would have looked like just generally like i, I think that's and i think that's a, you know another kind of a change not from the comics necessarily but just from what you would expect
0: yeah and i think part of that honestly um and i didn't talk to them about this on set but i, I have to assume because they shoot this in vancouver and they're shooting vancouver for san francisco and so i kind of feel like some of the kind of verisimilitude had to be them taking photos of, you know, San Francisco, 1987 and going, we need to replicate as much as we can, as exactly as we can, because Vancouver ultimately does not look like San Francisco eight months out of the year.
2: Not even close. And that it might actually be the one complaint that I had. It is the one thing that I was noticeable enough for me that it, I kind of actually wrote it down whenever I watched the pilot, for the first time, I always take notes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm someone who's lived in San Francisco, and that might be part of the issue for me. But I remember um, there are a couple scenes where my thought was, "I'm like, man, this is too flat to be San Francisco." Yeah, like, there's, there's no way this would happen. Like, this is not. But at the same time, they do get a lot of the city's cultural references correct. Yeah, they do a very good job in a lot of places of making Vancouver look and feel more from a distance than from up close.
0: You
2: like San Francisco. Yeah. He deserves of San Francisco proper that you still have a really strong 80s vibe to them.
0: Yeah. Well, and it helps too. I mean, there's a handful of things that help. It helps that both uh, Vancouver and San Francisco have a really vibrant, vibrant Chinatown. So I think we'll be able to see elements of that incorporated into future episodes. Uh, it also helps that, you know, the, there's the famous Mark Twain quote... Uh, uh, about the the coldest winter you've ever spent is a summer in San Francisco, and and so you 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 will get like the fog and the like the the weather conditions. You know when you think of California and you think of Vancouver, usually they don't match up at all. And that was a problem they had on shows like Psych sometimes, where it's like this doesn't look like Southern California, uh, San Francisco. It'll be less of an issue.
2: Yeah, Vancouver and San Francisco have very similar. Uh climates yeah because yeah you you will freeze your butt off in san francisco more often than not
0: but uh i i think that you know they they also have to be super aware of these things like I, i can't imagine that part of the success is not just coming from like going in knowing we have this this and this obstacle what do we do and like getting answers hammered out before cameras start rolling. And they do shoot a lot of stuff on a set, you know, there's, and, and it, the, the nice thing about sci-fi is they seem to be trying to go the way of AMC, trying to make themselves, uh, not just the Sharknado guys. And, and so you see them spending a lot of money on a lot of things that look really good. You know, uh, I think that, uh, I, I love when on Erp the first season, Felt a lot campier, and as the show has aged, it's like the look of the show has improved. Yes. And during that time, you started seeing them introducing things like the Expanse and Krypton, and and things like that. Or not the Expanse. What was the other one?
2: Oh gosh, um, this is how you can tell.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 fair. Full disclosure: it's two o'clock in the morning for me and one o'clock for you. So it's it's. <laughs> Anyway, but you know, you're starting to see sci-fi not being "quote unquote" the sci-fi channel anymore, and, and it's,
2: it is definitely. Um, and you know, have one of my variety of professional backgrounds is in makeup artistry. Which, mm-hmm. is why I like, I had to say about Maria's makeup. Yeah. Um. There's a term called glow up, where you get better, like you look better. You you figured out. Like, yeah. Everything and sci-fi is definitely undergoing that, and I think that deadly class. Is just another great sign of how it really has, and even Ben Helsing um, has also dramatically improved its look from season one.
0: To yeah, yeah, absolutely. So,
2: um, there, there's some huge leaps there, and just based off of the quality, I mean, just the quality of the pilot of the pilot. Again, we don't know what future episodes are going to look like. It definitely sets a very there's a very strong foundation kind of there going into it, but there's something that like very possibly have. The next "quote-unquote" Walking Dead in terms of something that is well put together, an excellent, well-told story that's got familiarity from comics, but also these additional elements as well to tell something really dynamic and culturally impactful. I mean, we can't disregard the elements of Billy class's story that makes so much sense even contemporarily. I mean, it's not a secret in the comics. Marcus blames Ronald Reagan.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Of,
2: you know, cutting funding for mental health and that's still a, a real life issue that, that people are dealing with still to this day and so I think that you know between the story having this universal quality to it that kind of jumps timelines to a certain extent um, and also just really well done quality and this excellent foundation this show really is like you said one of the best comic book pilots I've ever seen
0: yeah I mean I, I look I look at it and it's like first of all, pilots are really hard to do. Uh, some of the best shows you've ever seen have kind of mediocre pilots. Uh, but, you know, I look at it and it's like, it's, I, I put it right up there with, you know, the flash and Riverdale and iZombie and, you know, it's, it's weird. I don't want to say all CW stuff, but really uh, outside of the Marvel Netflix stuff, it's, it's mostly the CW who have really good comic pilots uh, there's a lot of good comic show. Like you look at a show like Gotham or a show like Agents of Shield. Those are good shows, but they they were good shows halfway through season two. Um,
2: oh yeah, they're they're pilots and even most of their first seasons. Uh, Agents of Shield almost completely lost me as a viewer in the first.
0: Yeah, season. and and so that's part of that's part of like the discussion of Deadly Class having such a great pilot. And even Krypton, I thought the the pilot was very very strong, but I was mostly sold on. What we knew about the show going in and the fact that the pilot set it up so effectively, it's like the pilot was very good, but I wouldn't say the pilot was great. It was like it was it was a very good pilot that was setting them up for a great season. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, Winona, I've actually I've said this before, uh, as much as I adore that show now, uh, I think I had to watch the pilot two or three times before I finally kind of clicked with it and was like, oh, okay, yes, this is the show I want. Uh, it was a, it was a thing where I like, st- I, I kind of sat with it a few times and it didn't quite work for me for whatever reason at first. So a pilot is really hard to do. And uh, when you look at kind of the great comics pilots, uh, you know, Smallville again is one of those that, that, every, you know, it's funny. You can look back at that show. It's been God, almost 20 years, I guess, since that show started. Yeah. And, I know that recently somebody did a list and it was like, you know, that the 10 best episodes or whatever, and the pilot is still number one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so, uh, that tells you something about like how hard it is to do a truly great pilot and how important it is to do a really strong pilot because, you know, in a show that lasts for 10 years, if your best episode is the pilot, but people still think fondly of you and don't sit there and bitch that you got worse as you went on. Yeah. <laughs> It means you've done something right.
2: And we can definitely all think of, even within the comic book genre, shows that had a great beginning and you reached a point where you're like, please just cancel this. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking of some particular shows right now. Yeah. Do that. And I think that if, if Deadly Class delivers on this pilot, beyond we get three four episodes in and we're still seeing this kind of quality Mm -hmm. there's a very real possibility they're going to have one hell of a show
0: oh yeah and i think too the the really interesting thing will be how people react to it you know um the comic it's easy to make comparisons to the walking dead in the comic because they're both from image they both kind of truck in this thing where anybody can just die at any time cause it's a very violent world and there's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens. Um, and, and in the post game of Thrones post walking dead world, I think that there's going to be a lot of kind of that in terms of like the audience going like, Holy crap. The biggest thing I'm waiting for is for, you know, this plot point where so-and-so dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that the uh, the thing that's interesting about Deadly Class is sci-fi doesn't have a show like that where people are hanging on that kind of stuff. Like even Winona, which people adore, it's mostly about kind of character moments. It's not about plot. And like Krypton, it's like it's a blend of both. Uh, I don't think anybody's like hanging on every moment of it, even if like some they had that great zod twist in the first season and things like that. It's not a plotty show. it's much more character driven. And this is a character driven show, but plot is such a big part of what makes the comic work um, that I think this could be a, a very it could be a unique thing to sci-fi and it could be potentially their version of you know The Walking Dead. It could be their thing of people getting really, really invested in in a way that they haven't necessarily seen before. Uh, and we'll see. Cause obviously it's, it's hard to predict. Like you couldn't have predicted that AMC was going to undergo a radical sea change as a result of the walking dead. Anybody who says that they knew it was, is lying. Um, so like it's you're not sitting here going like oh yeah this is going to be the Walking Dead and sci-fi is going to be a, a contender in two years like that's not a reasonable prediction to make, but I do think that the way the audience engages with Deadly Class could be very similar to the way the audience engages with The Walking Dead, and that that could change the way that sci-fi approaches some of their products in the future if if it is as good as it kind of promises to be.
2: Yeah, I think it's definitely going to change a little bit of how how some of these stories will do. Yeah. Like you said, this has definitely got both elements of the characters and the plot and um, you don't always see that done with a good set of balance. I think if this is done right, we could see, partially because of delicate not just a shift on sci-fi but a, kind of a shift in the way to really build another network, too. I mean, it's the it's entertainment industry when somebody finds something that really really works everyone does some kind of version of it or, mm-hmm. you know a, a version within like their own you know maybe it's not zombies maybe it's something else yeah, yeah. that building class is kind of in a unique position that it's coming in that growth phase with a kind of its own unique story where it may be actually changing how we see future stories being told, or different comics that have been maybe hiding back there.
0: that,
2: are mm-hmm. like that I going forward.
0: And it's also coming at a, at a moment where it shares DNA with a lot of things uh, that are on TV right now. You know, when we were joking, when we did the set visit, it was, it was part of a kind of larger group of set visits. And we went to Sabrina and deadly class and uh, the magicians And, uh, that same week I went to legacies and it was like, Oh, I'm going to another special school for special people who do special things. Um, and it just felt like this, this is a a thing that we're tapping into right now. Uh, post Riverdale, I think is, is all of these kind of like cool little niche, you know, stories about, uh, special young people who are, trapped in situations over their heads. And meanwhile, you see deadly class, like not only fits into that, but then it also is kind of the tip of the spear for this wave of comics adaptations that are coming in the next year or so where you're going to see the boys and you're going to see why the last man, and you're going to see, you know, various different things that are umbrella Academy. You're going to see non-superhero comic adaptations that are in a lot of ways, kind of these offbeat, um, stylish, violent kind of things that uh, you wouldn't necessarily know they were comics except for the fact that like, that's how they're being kind of entrée into the world because there's a million comic book adaptations. And so it's it's this weird thing where it checks a lot of boxes of things that are going on. And so in the same way that you kind of said like, yeah, if this gets popular, you could see a lot of copycats. uh, It's almost like, it's built in that even if the show doesn't become a status, a, like a, a standard bearer itself, it's an effective execution of a couple of things that like are already kind of really hot right now. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to see kind of, it, I feel like it's coming into the the TV ecosphere at a moment where uh, we're really ready for it. Mm-hmm. And it'll be really interesting to see kind of how the audience responds. I'm, I'm excited to see kind of what the chatter is on Twitter tomorrow as more and more people actually get a chance to sit down with it. Cause obviously the people who've seen it at the, these handful of special screenings they've done and, a, and the, the press people who have seen it up to this point are all kind of predisposed to liking it. Cause the people who are watching it a month early are the people who really want to see it. And so uh, now that it's out there on the internet for people to, to watch for free, I'm, I'm really curious to see how the audience starts to respond. Now,
2: I'm also kind of curious to see how um, people who, literally have no experience in subject matter to you. yeah yeah um, and, and that's you know that's even beyond just the people who aren't like the super niche super interested because I mean, obviously you're going to get a wave of people watching the pilot online who have read the comic or at least heard of the comic. and then you're possibly going to start getting people who are complete total i have no idea what this is i'll check it out yeah and i, I think that in very real way that deadly class is striking at exactly the right time. And I'm not saying it's necessarily superhero fatigue. I don't necessarily see that. I think that <laughs> we're getting new stories and different ways of telling stories. But I think this is definitely seeing a shift in kind of the type of entertainment we're willing to accept from comic books and, in a very real way is elevating the entire medium.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And again, I mean, we're we're at a point where we've got iZombie, we've got Winona Earp, we have uh, even Krypton to an extent, although that's still you know, ostensibly superheroes. Uh, we're in a moment in time right now where I think people are much more willing to go like, okay, like let's, let's try to step outside of the box of superheroes. Cause even traditionally, even stories that weren't quote unquote superhero stories were very rooted in superheroism. I mean, you look at a thing like Smallville where nominally it was about Clark, but it became about Superman very quickly. Uh, and, and so I think that you're right. It's coming along at a time when, Uh, the definition of kind of what a comics adaptation can be is expanding. Uh, It's going to be really interesting to see how people respond to this kind of wave this year of, like I said, a bunch of stuff that doesn't conform to how you think of a comic book adaptation. And it'll be interesting to see whether people watch, you know, deadly class and Watchmen and umbrella Academy and even make necessarily connections back to the comics or whether, most of the audience will be there for the show and the comics will be kind of an afterthought like you see with the walking dead
2: i'm actually kind of curious to see if um in any way if deadly class kind of drives people to some of the shows you mentioned like do you specifically mentioned the magicians
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, i am a huge fan of the magicians um i adore that show it's probably one of my top ten all time favorites for a lot of reasons and um one of the things, I mean, I don't think it gets quite the, I mean, obviously it has it has its audience. It's been continuously renewed. Yeah. Um, but it, I don't think it makes quite the dent that other shows might make. And I'm, mm-hmm. kind, of, I'm kind of wondering to see if the success of something that Maybe and I, I I'm loath to use the term mainstream because I don't necessarily see deadly class as mainstream in yeah in the, in the standard sense, but I'm kind of wanting to see if something that maybe a little more quote unquote mainstream like deadly class mm-hmm. hitting that sweet spot striking right when that iron is hot like it is right now, if that's going to kind of maybe shift people a little bit to maybe give shows like Winona Earp, The Magicians, and even Krypton because it is very much not a standard superhero story. Yeah. They look because they don't necessarily get some of the, the buzz
1: mm-hmm.
2: Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and The Flash and Arrow and things like that. I'd be curious to see if there's also kind of like a side effect of both some of these other shows.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I certainly think that you're, you're starting to see a wave of kind of stylish comic book shows and happy. We haven't mentioned, but Happy's a hit as well on sci-fi. And, and I kind of feel like soon you're going to see a, a world where sci-fi has potentially as many comic book shows as the CW, but because they're not a shared universe and they aren't superhero shows, they aren't thought of in that way. Like you don't have people going, Oh, well, sci-fi is going to ruin their reputation. If they're all, if they're nothing but comic book shows like you do with people at the CW every year. Um, and, and so it'll be really interesting to see as they build this and also sci-fi because of the fact that they aren't a major network, uh, they have an extra hour of programming open relative to other networks because they, they, the 10 o'clock hour, which is when deadly class is airing. It's when Krypton airs, uh, is open to them in a way that it isn't to the CW because the CW has essentially to stick with like prime time because they need to have a million people watching for a show to be a hit. Um, and, and so it, there's a lot of kind of moving pieces, but I feel like as you start to get some of these shows bundled, like I do think that, you know, deadly class can drive people to the magicians of Krypton if you pair it correctly and you market it correctly. And it'll be interesting to see as they start to build a brand identity that isn't just kind of tee hee sharknado uh, that, that, It'll be interesting to see how these things kind of support one another. You know, I think we've seen that already with Winona, because Winona, uh, at least in the public consciousness, has gotten bigger and bigger as it's gone on, and and that's not what you usually see in television. Usually, it's like the most interest is the first season, and there's standard attrition. You know, everybody comes in, they're super excited to see it, and then eventually they drop off. With Winona, it's getting bigger and more talked about every year. And uh I, I kind of feel like what you're gonna start to see is that the credibility of Winona and Krypton and the Magicians and whatever else is gonna help sci-fi shed some of the baggage of its image. And uh you could very realistically see and like I said, I don't think you're ever gonna see something like The Walking Dead revolutionizing AMC again. But I do think if you get a bunch of these shows that are all good in the same space and that all have similar audiences, uh you know, I, I could easily see them doubling the audience of something like Winona Earp and making it, you know, close to like Supergirl and the Flash. Absolutely. All right. To
2: the audience yeah.
0: Great programming. All right. Any final thoughts? Uh, we, we talked for an awful long time and this is a lot of kind of broad generalizations because we didn't want to get into super spoiler territory. Uh, we will kind of do more of an episodic breakdown uh, when we, once, once people have had a little bit more time to digest the episode and we have our other co-hosts with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but any final thoughts before we, uh, shut down for the evening?
2: <laughs> my only final thoughts is if you've, you know, if you've seen the pilot, you know, talk about it on social media. I want to see what people are saying. Like, yeah. I, I really want to be involved in that conversation because I'm, I'm dying to see what people think of this. And that's really my only final thought is I really want to hear what other people think.
0: Yeah. The one thing I will say, uh, to me, and I said this in my interview, um, the, the part that grabbed me the least was the first like 10 minutes, 12 minutes or so, because it felt very much like something you'd seen before. Like it wasn't bad, but it was like, oh, we're doing this now. And uh, if you're, I, th- I feel like if you're watching it online instead of at like TV time, it's easier to kind of just walk away from it. And I would say if you're starting the, the episode, if, if for some reason you've listened to this first, I don't know why you would. But uh, if, if you're having trouble kind of getting into the episode uh, in the first 10 minutes or so, like stick it out because basically as, as much as I like Benjamin Wadsworth, uh, there's only so much you can do when it's one character kind of feeling sorry for himself. But once the other characters start to enter the show and the world starts to flesh out, uh it is when it really comes alive. And so uh if you're if you're sitting down to watch the pilot and you're having a hard time kind of making it through those first 15 minutes or so just know that like that exposition has to be there so that some of the decisions he makes later make sense. Uh but that once the other characters come in it catches fire.
2: there's, there's definitely a payoff for that. Yeah.
0: All right. So where can people find you on the wide world of webs?
2: Well, they can find me on Twitter at life in Polaroid. And I will say this for clarity. It is spelled just like the camera.
0: Nice. Uh, yeah, you can, you can find me on Twitter at Russ Burlingame. R-U-S-S-B-U-R-L-I-N-G-A-M-E. Uh, that's really long and I'm not going to repeat it. So, uh, you can follow deadly class pod and, uh, once we have announced our uh, our lineup of hosts, all of our usernames will be in the bio. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on Podbean right now. Uh, once we have a few episodes in the bank, I'll get us up on Spotify and iTunes. And uh, you can uh, follow us at deadlyclasspodcast.com. And uh, yeah, check back with us uh, in the next week or so, because like I said, not only are we going to have a much more kind of content heavy discussion of the pilot, but also uh, very soon we're going to start talking about the comics and uh, our first episode will probably be a little bit more uh, introductory in terms of like how we all came to deadly class and why we're doing the podcast. So my other show, the Emerald city video podcast, I always say, you know, come back by noon on the fifth day and always remember to rewind your cassettes. Uh, That, that seems like a little bit seems like, like I can, I can appropriately say that for this time. Because probably it'll be about five days, and we'll we'll have something more uh and something deeper um, and also you know deadly class takes place in nineteen eighty seven so rewind those cassettes. <laughs> Freedom Mortem, the Deadly Class Podcast, is part of the Emerald City Video Podcast Network. It's produced and edited by Russ Burlingame, that's me. And you can contact us at any time by writing to Podcast at gmail.com.